Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hi, my name is Mia Bella Bricky. I was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. I have a little brother who's three years younger than me, and I grew up in a small family. It was just my parents and me and my brother. And I grew up right in the heart of Salt Lake and Sugar House. So small community was pretty much like the definition of my childhood. I grew up playing all different kinds of sports. I was into soccer for a long time. I was on a swim team for a long time. And as I started getting older, when I was like closer to like eight, I started doing martial arts and fell in love with it and was doing martial arts and was on a premier soccer team. And I was also dancing on the side. So I was a super active kid and always going straight from school to one extracurricular, like all the time. And I was raised kind of with the belief that like happiness and success was going to be found through those things, but through being super active and being good at those activities too. That was a big lesson that pushed onto me was making sure to be good at things. <laughs> the point is, is that I was a super healthy kid. I took all my extracurriculars very seriously, which meant I gave all of myself to them. So therefore I was in great shape, probably the best shape I will have ever been in my entire life. I don't think I'll ever be able to get back to that. But also when you're a child and you're 10 years old, it's relatively easy to maintain super good shape when you're doing all those things all the time. So I got super sick, but it wasn't right away. It was a really slow, slow trickle of sickness. And then all of a sudden it was like doozy, wham, you've been hit with um, complete like heart failure. So to be more clear, when I was around 10 years old, my family and I had started a tradition of going and spending every other summer in Europe. 
I am very privileged, very lucky. And we had started creating some friends over in Europe who we could go back to and see. And so every other year we were going to Europe. And I like to tell this part of the story because it is irrelevant for myself and my own experience. I truthfully don't know if it has anything because I've never gotten any confirmation from any of the doctors as to where or how or why or when I got the disease that I did. The disease that I got was so rare. Nobody knew anything about it. Still, they don't know how people pick it up. And there's no way to diagnose said disease until usually the patient has passed away. The only way to do to diagnose the disease is to biopsy the heart. And you can usually only biopsy a heart after a person. So we were in Europe that summer. It was the summer of 2010. And it was so strange because we were in Turkey and I had been eating eggs for breakfast my entire life. My mom made me an egg with toast that before school every morning. So to have a, an egg with breakfast that morning was totally normal. And I remember eating it, but then about an hour later, I had the most intense stomach pain and I threw up like my entire breakfast. And I remember my, it was kind of a strange moment that was like, oh, that was weird. Like maybe just, the food didn't settle well. I continued my day, didn't think anything of it. But with some perspective, in my opinion, I think maybe that might have been the moment when I did contract the disease because um, pretty much any time afterwards that I ate an egg, whether it was cooked into anything, like just an egg for breakfast, a hard-boiled egg, if it was baked into something, I would become so violently ill. Um, and I I wish I could even explain why I, I feel like that was when, but that's just what my intuition tells me because almost immediately after any time I touched an egg, I would become so sick. I remember we went home and for almost like eight months i dealt with what my family and i understood was like a new allergy to eggs and so i was going to different doctors and basically all they could tell me was like well yeah it's strange sometimes people just develop allergies and so they were saying that i had just randomly developed a sensitivity and an allergy to eggs and so i guess that was my new reality and so that's how I was living and but strangely enough about like six months after that trip when I was back home I started just being like kind of sick all the time and so if I'm thinking I went into the hospital um January, February, March, April, May, June I went in in May so I went into the hospital on the 25th of May. And then 
For months leading up to that, I was just a really sick kid. I was misdiagnosed with uh, salmonella at one point. Um, at another point when I was presenting very sickly, um, we went to the Instacare and they said I just had some random virus. The doctors couldn't be specific. It started most significantly in January leading up to May. For those months leading up to May, I was in and out of the Instacare a couple times. There were a couple soccer tournaments that I played in and my family was starting to notice that I was losing my physicality. I couldn't keep up. I wasn't running as fast. I wasn't maintaining stamina. And for me, I was just experiencing, I just felt like I was just like sick and I just couldn't get over the sickness. But it was strange because it would come in waves, right? So like for two weeks, I would be like on top of the world feeling great. And then the next two weeks, I would be so sick and out of school. And it was a cycle. It was like, and with perspective, what really was happening was my body was slowly dying, <laughs> but my body, that, that was how it was protecting itself because what was ultimately happening was my heart was being attacked during those months. So I would be okay for about a couple of weeks and I'd be really not okay. And it got to the point in May where I was so sick during one of the weeks that I was sick. It was, I was laying on the floor of our bathroom and I was throwing up every three minutes. Throwing up every three minutes sounds a bit, um, extreme and almost unbelievable, but that's kind of how concerning it was that it was on a timeline like that, that it was happening that quickly and that often. You could set a timer every three minutes I'd be throwing up and it lasted for about 12 hours. It was torturous. I remember just wanting to drink water so badly and wanting it to stay down, but Every time I would sip the water, I would feel it go down my throat. I would feel it hit my stomach and I would instantly feel it come back up. And it was like torture. It was like my body was not accepting anything. It was rejecting everything. My parents and I, we decided to go to the Instacare. My family and I, we were supposed to be leaving on a trip to Hawaii about like a week and a half later from this date. So... The idea was that we didn't really want to go to the Instacare because we're about to pay for this trip. And, but we still went and we showed up. And the idea was that I was just going to get some fluids and go back home. But I just needed to, like, basically get rehydrated because what was so clear to us that was happening was I had some virus, a flu, like I'd been told for the months, right? Months leading up, I'd been told she just has a virus, that she just, she just can't kick it. And so we were like, well, okay, I need some fluids. I should be better, right? So we get there, they bring me back and they're trying to place an IV and they poked me nine different times and they couldn't place one because I was so dehydrated. Um, they tried nine different times each time. 
the vein blew out because my veins were just paper thin. There was literally nothing. (laughs) There were no veins to put an IV into because I was just that dehydrated. And when they couldn't get one, they sent me up to the ER. And so we went up to the ER at Primary Children's, went back and they had a IV team. There are are like teams of people who specifically put in IVs for people who are have like trickier bodies to put IVs into. The IV team got my IV in on the first try and immediately started just flooding my body with fluids because they had gotten a note from the Instacare, a call from the Instacare that I was going to be coming up there. The nurses had communicated to them that I was in a really poor condition that they had tried nine different times to get me an IV, that they were concerned and that I was like a high priority case. So they were working quickly. I had a lot of people working around me. Once the fluids started going in, they were doing all the other checkups. And here's the thing. When you grow up in a small community, like I said, the definition of my childhood was small community. My dad was close friends with a couple of the nurses that were on staff that night in the ER at Primary Children's. And my dad went in and being the protecting father that he is, he communicated to his friends what he thought was going on and what we had been told was going on. Again, we had been told I had some random, some virus, you know, something that I just couldn't kick. So when we got to the ER, he was telling the nurses and they were listening to him because also with some context, um, my dad is a doctor himself. He's gone through all of the training to become a doctor. He is a dentist, but dentists are just, they have to do all that training just as much as any other doctor. So, and my dad holds himself and presents himself accordingly. So when he walked into the ER, he was like, my name is Dr. Bricky. This is what's going on. This is what's wrong with my daughter. Um, Hi, I know you, you're my friend. I know that you'll listen to me. This is what's wrong with Mia. So they listened and they took his word. And ultimately it ended up setting me back a little bit when they gave me as many fluids as they did. Because just to clarify, when we got to the ER, the thing that was being said was she's super dehydrated. She needs a lot of fluids, but that's it. After she's hydrated, we're leaving. Um, So I'm in the ER. Fluids are going. They're noticing that my basically my condition is getting worse. As I receive more and more fluids, I'm not getting better. I'm frankly only getting worse. They're doing all these tests. They're listening to my heart and they're noticing that my heart is not beating normally. The rhythm is all over the place. It's not, frankly, no rhythm. It was completely out of control. It was just beating randomly. So they pulled up an echo, which is like a scan where it's like the same thing that they do for babies in your belly so that you can see what's going on. 
And they looked at my heart and they realized that my heart was barely, barely beating at all. It was barely pushing blood. Um, the top chamber would be like every 30 seconds and the bottom chamber would be like every one minute. It was bad. So they were like, we don't even know how this heart is. It's not working. So what they decided they needed to do was basically a small little procedure where they wanted to shock my heart with a wire. They had to put me down, like put me under, but they took a little wire on my carotid artery and they were going to shock the wire with some electricity to see if that would restore the correct electrical rhythm to the heart. I remember when they kind of pulled me to the side and they explained that this is what they were going to do. And I remember being like, wait, what? I thought I was going to be going home soon. Like, why are you taking me out of this room and doing something more to me, right? Like, I don't understand. And they explained to me the best that they could that my heart wasn't working, that they were concerned for my heart, but they were so calm. Like, they kept their cool around me. So from my perspective, I had no idea the uh, panic that everyone else was experiencing, really. What was really happening outside of my room is like the nurses pulled my dad to the side and said, you need to get your wife here right now. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? Like, we're leaving soon. She doesn't need to be here. And the nurses looked at my dad and said, your wife needs to be here right now. This is not a small thing. Like, they made it very clear the shit was bad. Like, so my dad, still not really believing them, was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm sure she'll be fine, right? But there's this thing that kind of goes on where the nurses don't really want to give you that worst case scenario because I mean who of course you don't want to believe that a child is going to die but the nurses didn't really know how to tell my parents that I was like on death's doormat basically and that if they weren't able to get my heart to beat normally then it was going to be really bad and Still, even then, my my dad wasn't comprehending. But he still called my mom. My mom showed up. I remember my mom gets there. Now I have the both of them there. And um, I remember looking back, it's kind of interesting because, you know, there are pictures of that first night in the ER. And... Someone already had written me a get well soon card, like a friend had already written me and made me this big, beautiful card. And I had only been in the ER for like an hour at that point. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is really nice, so super sweet. But like, and I remember thinking it was almost like a little silly in the sense, because like, like my cousin had just been in the ER a couple of weeks leading up to that because he had been sick. And 
he had been in the ER and I, when the family found out it was a scary thing, that was really our first like experience with a family member being in the ER was like a couple weeks leading up to my experience. My cousin was in the ER and it was like scary, but then he was out and he was fine. And so after that, I remember being like, oh, okay. Like, so the ER is like really not that big of a deal. Right. So, you know, people come out <laughs> of the ER. So, um, I remember when I was reading this letter in bed, I was like, this is really nice, but like maybe a little much, but either way, I, it's just an interesting reflection. And I think also it shows how well the nurses were hiding their fear because also now with some perspective, my parents have spoken and I have spoken to one of the nurses that was there that night who helped like check me in and they've actually made some revisions to their own protocol because of my case. She told me that after what happened with me, where a father came in with their sick child and told the nurses what was going on. And because there was a pre-existing friendship existing there, the nurses listened to my dad and basically did what he said before doing an initial exam on me, right? So like before even doing like an intake exam, listening to my heart, before putting the IV in, right? Because my dad came in, he's like, she needs fluids. So they're like, got it, we're gonna get her fluids. Put the IV in, start pumping fluids. Then they do the like intake check and they're like, wait a second, her heart's not beating, like her heart's not doing well. And when a heart is not doing well, you do not overload it with fluids. And what had been happening when I was at home for like the 12 hours of me throwing up every three minutes, my body was keeping itself alive by doing that. My heart was protecting itself by basically telling my body to excavate, get rid of any extra possible fluid inside of this body that this heart might have to possibly pump, get it out because my heart was not strong enough to pump barely anything. So its response to keep itself alive was to remove all liquid from my body that it possibly could. And so that's why I was throwing up every three minutes. That's why even though I had thrown up all my stomach bile, my body was still trying to throw up every three minutes. And that is why they should have done a proper exam originally, because pretty much when they started giving me those fluids, my heart started shutting down by the minute. And that's what the nurses realized. And that's why they were all like a little bit, they were like, this little girl's dying, dying. And her dad thinks that she just has like a virus and she's just dehydrated. So they tried to communicate to my dad the situation. My dad communicates to my mom that she needs to be there. And my mom shows up and I remember my mom walking in and I'm like, oh, mom's here. Okay, that's nice. Like, 
my mom and I are so tight. So it was definitely lovely to have my mom there. But I also remember being like, what is she doing here? Like, we don't need her here, right? Because she was taking care of my brother. She was supposed to be taking care of my brother while I was there with my dad. And it was my parents who explained to me that I was going to be going and having a procedure done. It actually wasn't even the nurses. They explained, they were like, so you're more sick than we thought. And they tried to explain the procedure. They were like, you're, you're going to go down and you're they're going to shock your heart with some electricity because it's not beating normally. And you're going to be totally fine and everything's fine, but your heart's just not working normally. So we just need to go do this thing. Like, as I'm saying this out loud, it's really strange because I think everyone else in the room finally was picking up like, okay, this girl is like basically barely alive, but we can't let her know that. And so the nurse like stepped over and kind of tried to explain from like the nurse's point of view of what was going to happen. And he was a little more anatomical about it. And he was like, we're going to put this wire up your artery. And it started to freak me out. I was like, wait, I don't want that. Like, that sounds like a lot. And then my dad steps in and is like, don't worry. Like, you'll be put under. You won't be experiencing anything. You know, you'll be asleep. And so I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, Let's just like get this over with because when you're a child, you actually like don't really have consent, but like, of course, like they wanted me to like consent to what was happening. And so I, I was like, okay, yeah, like we can do this. Let's go, let's do it. I remember being nervous and I remember having like a very ominous feeling hanging over me. It's hard to think about. That was the last day that I was uh, the person that I was born as. Because they wheeled me down in the bed and my mom and dad walked down with me. And at that point, my mom had brought my danger cat, which was a stuffed animal that my dad had made me as a kid. And I slept with it every night. And so I had my stuffed animal with me in the bed and I remember giving it to my parents because I couldn't take it into the OR and I remember like looking at them and getting off of well first saying goodbye like right before the doors and um, it's weird because like there was a feeling going on right like I was nervous I could feel it my stomach was feeling the nerves like I, my body was feeling the nerves if anything, like my body was maybe a little bit more aware of what was about to happen than my mind, but my body was feeling it. But my brain was like, <laughs> it's really weird to have your body being like, you're dying, but your brain being like, well, what do you mean? Because no one, you're, I'm a child, you know, I'm, I'm 10, 11 years old. Like, I don't really have a concept of like death. I have, grown up in the exact same house my entire life. I've gone to the same school my entire life. I've had the same friends my entire life. I've never moved houses. My room as a child looked the exact same from like five years old to like 14 years old. Like I lived in a room with my brother in a bunk bed. Like I never experienced change ever, real significant change. I had no experience with it 
up and like leading up to that day, I had never really known real change. So my brain wasn't even considering that like something real could really change, but my body was feeling it. So it was a really weird paradox as I'm thinking back on it, right? Like, I think in the moment, like, <laughs> my little 11-year-old self was dissociating and um, feeling super nervous. But as I'm telling this story to you, you know, I'm recalling these events and I can feel some of these feelings just as strongly as if it all happened yesterday. I. I just celebrated 12 years and that's huge and amazing. But at the same time, it's also hard because it doesn't feel like it's been 12 years. It feels like it was all yesterday still. And becoming an adult 12 years post a near-death experience is hard because like I'm trying to remember the lessons you know that come with having a near-death experience but and i still have all those feelings right but like that was still 12 years ago though so that's like a significant amount of time between right they brought me through the swinging doors i say goodbye to my parents i remember getting off the bed i remember walking and i remember sitting down on the or bed because if you can, they'll have you walk yourself and lay yourself down on that table, which is also just a strange experience. You know, you're like really facing your mortality as you lay yourself down on this operating table. The nurses were treating me with so much like sweetness because everyone around me knew except for me, right? So they were being so sweet to me. And when I think back, like I, I remember that they were nervous though what ended up happening is this is where my firsthand experience cuts out pretty much well not my own you know I definitely had my own firsthand experience and I am still processing and like trying to understand my own real firsthand experience versus like all of the experiences and the stories that have been told to me that happened after all of this that I'm about to explain. If I tell it sort of like, like I'm narrating right. So they began the procedure and everything was fine. They completed it. They were able to put a wire up my carotid artery. They were able to shock my heart, although it did give a little bit more force to the beat, it didn't work well enough for the doctors to feel confident enough to unintubate me and just to see how it goes. So ultimately that ended up being one of the reasons why I am here today, the fact that they kept me intubated. But they admitted me into the hospital, kept me intubated and put me into a room in the ICU. And it was about four hours later, maybe four to six, super early in the morning. My parents were downstairs in the cafeteria. It was very early morning, like that like quiet time of the morning where it's almost a little like you're waiting for the pin to drop, right? And 
the way my parents tell it, they say that they were sitting in the cafeteria. They heard a code being called over the speaker because, you know, back in 2011, they would call out codes over the speaker. So the entire hospital would hear when someone was coding. And it was pretty much done because it was like the quickest way to get people's attention to go help. And it was like the tool that they used to basically alert people to patients coding. But, you know, my parents, they say they, they heard a code called out. They look up and there was a nurse standing in the doorway crying, looking at them. And when my dad made eye contact with the nurse, the nurse just said, you need to come right now. And my dad says that he was like up and out of the room before the nurse even finished her sentence. The nurse was bawling and that's all my parents needed to see to know that it was not good. So they're running up to my room. When they get there, the biggest man, the biggest man in the ICU, he's like a 250 pound man, like six foot 10 on top of a tiny 90 pound 11 year old girl doing CPR very, very aggressively. And my dad says that when he came up, he saw this big man like pounding into his little girl's chest and he didn't know how to respond because his instinct was to protect me, but he knew his brain was smarter than that, right? So what ended up happening is my dad just started like jumping up and down and my dad's outside of the room jumping up and down and the nurses are like trying to help him and he's like don't fucking he's like don't touch me i won't get in the way don't touch me my dad's there jumping panicking my mom's like bawling and i'm laying in bed receiving cpr and i don't remember any of this the last thing i remember is like literally having them putting the mask on me that six hours before. So they're doing CPR on me and pretty much my heart never restarted because I was intubated. It was like my saving grace, basically. It was the only reason that my brain had a steady flow of oxygen the entire time that I was receiving the CPR. But the CPR ended up lasting 65 minutes. So a whole hour and five minutes. And technically a person is not considered, like you're really not supposed to do CPR on a person for longer than 15 minutes. It's usually believed that like the brain passes away because of the lack of oxygen. So. Even though they did CPR on me for 65 minutes and I was intubated the whole time, they didn't know if I was brain dead or not because I was not responding, that's for sure. And they had me on life support. They ended up putting me on ECMO because like I said, my heart never restarted. And um, again, small community, right? So the person who came in and ended up 
saving my life and putting me on CPR was the father of my classmate that I grew up going to school with. And my story has a lot of really weird coincidences and connections. My story has a lot of strange and definitely divine moments because while I was having CPR, they were calling the doctor a lot and he wasn't answering. And turns out it was my own classmate who ended up picking up the phone and giving the phone to his dad, who then, you know, found out what was going on, rushed to the hospital, walks in the room, sees my dad and is like, what are you doing here? And my dad says, it's Mia. Something switched the set when my dad said, it's Mia. Dr. Scaife looked into the room and just like, boom, boom, glove, scalpel, like cut, slice, boom, like had me on life support within minutes and saved my life. And that's where we were, you know, I was okay. Now it's, I'm on life support. And my parents are like, oh, what is going on? Like we got to the hospital like eight hours ago and they couldn't tell them what was going on. My heart on the monitor, there was nothing you could see. All you could see was that it wasn't beating. My heart wasn't beating, but that was all you could see. Otherwise I was perfectly healthy. Like they couldn't understand why my heart had stopped and refused to start again. They didn't understand. So because of the trauma though, that my body had taken during the cardiac arrest, the doctors decided really my only, my only option was a heart transplant. And yet another weird divine moment the ECMO machine that I had been put on happened to be the oldest outdated version <laughs> machine in the hospital. Whoever had grabbed it grabbed the one from the back of the room that was sitting in the corner. <laughs> they like grabbed some old machine and turns out I only had about a week and a half on that machine. That's how long that machine could run. And then I would have needed to be put onto a new machine. But the issue was that my body had received so much trauma. They were not confident that I was strong enough to be moved from one machine to the other. They basically were like, she has to have a heart transplant by the end of this week and a half. <laughs> or else we have to take her off life support. And we can try and put her on another life support. But we don't want to try because we know it's not going to work. And we know she's not strong enough. And they didn't want to do like a, you know, there were other options like a pacemaker or even like a pig's heart, other stuff like that. And they still, the doctors were like, no, like she is literally her only option is a heart transplant because that was the only thing that my body was going to be able to recover from. And maybe to this day, I don't totally understand why. But that's what the doctors said. So eight hours after walking into the hospital, my parents were told that I had a week and a half to live. And that's pretty much how that next week and a half started. A lot of praying, a lot of prayers from people, um, a lot of messages. 
I was on and pretty much it, the waiting game started. You know, I, they put me into a medically induced coma and lowered my body temperature to nearly like freezing to try and preserve my brain and reverse any possible damage that was created during the CPR. And yeah, then the waiting game for a heart transplant basically began. There was some divine timing when it came to like the deciding moment when someone was going to decide whether or not I was brain dead and capable and reliable and like to be put on um, the UNOS organ donation list. You must be considered a viable recipient and you have to have positive chances of doing well and surviving and thriving post-transplant. So if you're a person who doesn't have a high chance of survival past surgery, um, they won't even put you on the list because frankly, they don't want to give an organ to someone who isn't going to take care of it. They don't want to give an organ to someone who's not strong enough to live through surgery. Um, they won't give an organ to someone who may live through surgery, but then die a couple days later. Like they're very picky about it. So originally the person who assessed me actually marked me as an unviable candidate. The person who was testing me had asked me to open my eyes and squeeze their hand and I didn't do that. And I also failed a number of their other tests. And this was also while I was still under a lot of medication and basically in a medically induced coma, but I wasn't responding enough. So I was marked as an unviable candidate. And as the person who was assessing me was walking out of the room with that said assessment, my dad ran up to him and was like, wait, please just wait. He, he turned around and he yelled in my ear as I was laying in bed. He, he, my dad goes, Mia, this is your father. You need to open your eyes right now. Open your eyes right fucking now. And he kind of yelled it very forceful. And my dad says that I opened my eyes. I looked at him and I squeezed his hand and then immediately went back to sleep. And my dad says that he watched the man cross out whatever he had written down, write something new and walk out of the room. And about an hour and a half later, they, my parents were told that I had been, that I had qualified and that they had okayed me to be put on the list. And uh, some of the nurses later explained uh, to my dad that who that man was and how basically my dad had just yet again saved my life. But to transition a little bit, that's kind of like the context of like what got me there, right? So now I'm like, now to like kind of tell my experience of that, right? So I'm in this coma waiting for a heart transplant. And that's where I had my NDE. And for a long time, I didn't really like understand what I was remembering because it felt like I was remembering a dream. I remember having these, the experience was so surreal that I couldn't convince myself that I was making it up, but I knew that it also hadn't happened because I had, there was no way that I was on top of this cliff 
at this one point in the last like three months because I knew that my physical body in the last three months had been in the hospital, right? What I'm explaining is um the thought process basically that I was going through after I left the hospital because a lot of my healing didn't start to even happen or like spark at all until like a couple of months after my transplant because I got my transplant on June 5th of 2011 and I left the hospital August 9th 2011 while I was like physically living in the hospital my emotional being my emotional state was just checked out I was apathetic towards everything apathetic towards myself apathetic towards life towards it was all too much so instead of feeling anything I just felt nothing and that was just the easiest way to like get through the physical therapy that I was going through you know by the time I left the hospital I had lost 80% of my muscle mass so all of my muscles had atrophied uh and I left in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk by myself. All of the muscles in my legs had atrophied and withered away. The circumference of my knees were bigger than my thighs and my, my shins. I could not go from the laying position to the sitting position on my own. I could not take myself to the bathroom on my own. I wore diapers while I was in the hospital and I used a walker to get around when I was at home. I was skin and bones by the time I left. So when I was home after the hospital, I kept remembering this moment. It was like it would come up when I was zoning out or dissociating or something like that. It was like a flashback of a memory and I remember trying to place it was really hard but then I sat myself down and I started just trying to because something that I had uh, they had kind of done for me as a form of rehab while I was in the hospital was help me get back into painting I was super shaky but painting was something that was easy for me to do because I didn't need to be super precise about it. I could use watercolor and like make a pretty design while still being really shaky and, and weak, but still felt like I was creating art. Um, and so I remember sitting down and thinking, well, I'm just going to try and like paint out like this memory that I'm having because I want to try and figure it out because it keeps coming up, but it's almost like a flashbulb memory, right? Like it's not very clear but I need to know what it is because it's something that's nagging at me. And as I started to paint, it's strange, you know, I've always been an artist my entire life. I'm very artistically driven, but it's like almost the second that I allowed myself to just stop thinking so much and instead allow like the feelings to translate into a color or the second like the paint just started working on the paper, it was like, it was like that the floodgate just kind of opened. It was like, whoa, okay, I remember like, before I even get into it, let me say like, I was 
really thrown off by my own memory because I almost like didn't believe myself for a while that it I thought maybe like I must be delusional because also I was raised outside of any church very far outside of any church so um I never had any real experience with like religion or talking about the afterlife or talking about what happens when you die like it none of those conversations had been had when I like re-remembered I almost thought I was like kind of crazy but as I you know told people I told my parents and what I remember and I believe that this is was what was going on when my heart went into cardiac arrest when they started CPR on me and then for the week and a half that I was on life support I was in limbo I was sitting on the edge of a cliff the entire time I can't tell you where this cliff was it wasn't anywhere on this planet earth but it was beautiful and it was tall the cliff was very tall the best i can compare it to would be like the cliffs of more type vibes right just massive and i had my feet hanging over the edge of the cliff like my feet were suspended in dead air mid air but i was sitting on the ground and i remember sitting there for what felt like ages and i just sat there and i looked at the sunset time did not exist in this plane so i was not concerned about time i was not thinking about it it was not even a concept so therefore it was not even something to think about it was just the experience was just ever existing i felt so calm and i think even to this day unconsciously my soul my spirit and my body tries to get back to that feeling often because now i have like a craving that feels insatiable and it's like i don't even know what it that craving is but it's like a craving to feel a certain way and this sounds so vague but it's like i know that there is a certain feeling that i can get to that's that's different from this feeling and it feels a lot better and it's like a state of just pure wholeness where you are one with everything that is out when i was sitting there on that cliff i was myself but i was also the exact same as everything else that was surrounding me not just like scientist like we were made of the same thing but like value wise like me as a as a soul sitting in that plane was just as like important or i was at the same playing field as the grass that i was sitting on and the air that i was breathing it was all one we were all one it was it was a connection it was just like true peace in a way that i have yet to feel sense and it's almost my part of me just always longs to get back to that 
But I sat there on the edge of that cliff with my feet hanging and I watched what I can only describe as best describe as a sunset, but it wasn't a sunset. Um, It wasn't a sunset like you've seen here on earth. What I was watching was a living, breathing ball of energy that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was bright white light, but it was colorful, but it wasn't blinding, but it was the brightest thing I've ever seen. And it was alive. It didn't have a face. It was a literal orb of pulsing, breathing, living energy that was colorful and alive. And it was slowly sinking towards, and below the the cliff was an ocean. So I'm sitting on the edge of this cliff. Below me is big, vast, open ocean that goes for miles and miles, 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 miles. I don't see land. Again, I just see open ocean. And there are beings that are at the bottom of the cliff. So I'm like up here. They're down at the bottom and they're even like waiting for me, but not in a way that was like they were even expecting me. They were just there. They were beings. um, And I wish I could explain what they looked like, but I can't like. They didn't even have bodies, like, they were spirits. They told me that if I wanted to jump off of the cliff, and, like, if I wanted to, that I could jump and that they would catch me, I would be safe. I wouldn't be hurt. It wouldn't hurt. There was a big emphasis on, like, if you choose to come with us, you will be a-okay. Like, you will be okay. But there was equal emphasis on, but don't come until you feel ready. And we will wait here and we will not rush you. And we will be here as long as we need to be here. Like, there's absolutely no rush. Like, there was just as much equal emphasis as for me to stay where exactly where I was as there was for me to go with them. If you come with us, we'll take you to the orb. I would return to the orb. They would take me there. I would be safe. I would, and I remember thinking like, yeah, I'll get there eventually. Like, thanks. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll get there eventually. I'm just like chilling right here for now. You guys are like so cool. I want to be with you. I want to go with you. But I know I'm not pressured to, and I know I'm not being pushed to. And so therefore I'm just going to enjoy sitting up here a little bit longer. And since I know I can get there eventually, I'm just going to like push staying up here a little bit longer because I'm enjoying being up here too. If I haven't made it clear, like it's just this cliff, like it was a cliff, an open cliff. And behind me was open grass and an open field with grass and flowers and some trees here and just pure, like just real beauty and lushness and just like kind of foresty vibes. And I haven't said this even yet, but 
behind me, there was a shed. And I did go in the shed once. And I remember not liking it in there. And so that's why I didn't go back in. It wasn't like scary looking, but it definitely, it didn't feel like it fit like this heavenly landscape that I was in, right? Like it was like this like brutal reminder of humanity sitting in this like field of heaven (laughs) of mortality. It was like this sinking, sounds brutal, but, and I don't want to use the wrong words. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was, there was like an energy around it that felt almost like, felt the energy that like engulfed this wooden shed right which I'll explain a little bit more in a minute but it almost felt like the shed represented humanity and like the energy that comes with being a human and having a physical body and being physically stuck to certain places like the actual energy of being a human it felt like that was like orbing around this shed. And when I went in, there were etchings of names on the walls. And it was like sad because there were thousands of names. And when I say sad, I don't mean heartbreaking sad. I just mean like a heavy melancholy energy that's like there and it's significant and it's something that you need to recognize because some feelings of loss that were hanging in there and like real like the feelings that come with being human you know being human is brutal we experience such a range of emotions the range and the range is just so extreme it goes from such low lows to such high highs. And that's what makes being human so unique. I think that's what makes humans humans is our ability to feel the feelings and have the experiences that we do, right? So I think that that shed that was behind me, it was the connection, the mortal connection to the realm that I had found myself in. And yeah, so like I said, I went in that shack and I looked around. I didn't add my name. And I remember thinking like very stubbornly that I didn't want to, but there were thousands of names in the wood of the walls of this shed that was like, kind of like sinking into the ground and falling apart a little bit. And like, like people had just taken sticks or whatever they could just to like write their names in, right? Like their human names. And I remember just like being in there and like being like, I need to get the fuck out of here. I did not like it in there at all. So I left very quickly and spent the rest of my time on the edge of that cliff. And that's where I sat for the whole, literally the entire, my entire experience of being there, which which did feel like forever. When I kind of like put all this together and realized what I was remembering, right? I told my dad, And my dad, his reaction sort of like solidified my like confidence in my story because he, his response was that he told me about how 
when I was still on life support and they weren't sure if I was even there. They weren't sure if I was brain dead or not. It was when things were really bad. There was a woman who is a very powerful witch and energy reader and psychic person who's just so in tune with the world's energies and other people. And she's a psychic witch for sure. But she came and she visited me while I was in the hospital, while I was in my coma. She's a friend of my parents. And yeah, she went in my room. She asked for some alone time with me. So they let her be alone with me. She sat there and she like held the bottom of my feet. And when she walked back out, she told my parents that she had tuned into me, right? She had found me, right? She said that I was sitting, that I was on a, another like plane, that like my brain was okay. She was like, she communicated to my parents that I was still there, that the daughter you know is still there, but she's in another plane, she's in another world, and she's hanging out by a body of water, and she feels really calm, but she doesn't know whether or not she wants to stay or leave. And she needs some like, she needs some affirmation. She needs to hear that you guys want her to stay. But other than that, like she's doing okay. She communicated like she's not brain dead or she's still there, but, and she's hanging out by a body of water, which to me is just like that one clarification from her really that connection really like was what made me feel so confident in my story that that is was my near-death experience that that while I was in my coma I left my body when my heart stopped and you know after that woman left and told my parents these things you know of course, the entire time before that too, they were at my bedside and weren't leaving, but you know, they really stepped it up and they were like, well, we can't even start to even entertain the idea of her not being okay. Like we need to tell her she's okay. Like they started to really push this, like we need to tell her how much we need her. We need to tell her that she needs to fight, right? And it's so true. Like I remember thinking, I don't really know, like, I don't know if I want to stay. I don't know if I want to go. I like having the option to choose and I'm going to like wait on that. And I remember just that and that that's kind of it. Like that's kind of how it ends. I don't remember how it ended. It ends for me just like by just being there. And then the next thing I remember is waking up. I think the next thing I remember is after at some point when I chose to fight and to stay, I started having, which there's people who tell stories of what it's like to be in a coma, right? I experienced that for sure. I remember thinking I was a baby in a baby's cradle at one point. My brain trying to place my body in space and figure out what was going on, hearing everything around me, but 
not being able to open my eyes. I literally remember yelling at myself to open my eyes, but not being able to open my eyes. I remember crying and screaming and being so confused and very upset. And then when I was finally able to open my eyes and then hear that I had had a heart transplant and that like my life was completely different and changed forever, that was, that was even more upsetting. And I became very apathetic. That's when I, it all became too much. That's when it all just overflowed. And instead of feeling it all, I literally just felt nothing for the last like two months of it because you know after my heart transplant like my lungs collapsed twice two different times my kidneys failed at one point my body just kept taking hit after hit I remember um, it's almost like I was in a point of being where it was like <laughs> like I think back on it now and um I think I was so upset and so angry because when I was in my coma and when before I transitioned into like the coma, the real coma state, when I was still having my near-death experience, when I was still in another realm, you know, I was okay then. Like I felt okay. But when I chose to stay and when I chose to, you know, return back to my body and experience all that, all the things that I did even afterwards, because like, it was really hard for me to even understand how I could like, how what happened to me happened to me. For a long time, I had this like, why me attitude. And then it was when I started re-remembering my NDE that things kind of became okay. Like... And it's not even like like me remembering my NDE. It didn't bring any solutions or answers or anything. It just sort of was like, to be a 12-year-old trying to understand an NDE, it's just like a trip. It's just a trip. So, you know, now I'm 24 years old and I've had a lot of therapy and I've thought a lot about it and I can speak so clearly about it now. But... It took a lot of years for me to even be able to explain the impact that that had on me. <laughs> for a long time, I was like, yeah, I died, but like, whatever, it's fine. Like, yeah, I'm here. I'm the same person. I'm literally no different. But <laughs> in reality, I am actually very different and I changed a lot in that experience and it has taken a lot of like release and just <laughs> therapy to figure out how my NDE shaped and shifted my personality into who I am today. And I do think it actually has had such a huge impact. I feel like because of the love and the acceptance that I felt in that moment sitting there on that cliff I really do try to live my life with those feelings at the forefront and that means living my life through love and living my life through acceptance and that means loving everyone and everything 
and accepting everyone and everything. And that means accepting the bad things that I don't necessarily want to happen, you know? Like I can accept the good things, but I'm equally accepting, I have to equally accept bad, right? Like, Like that feeling that I had that I wish I could go back to, even sitting here, like to just go back and feel that feeling one more time would be the meaning of life, right? And I wish I could go back, but the best I can do is live and try to live through love and acceptance. And in my personal opinion, that's the only way to get as close to that feeling as I can. Because when I live through love, I look at every experience and every situation with love. I look at every person with love, you know, trying to understand all sides of every situation, of every person. And when you really do try and hold yourself accountable to that, I do think that you start to see changes in the way that you just experience and think about life. My near-death experience made me more appreciative of life and it made me really take in the small moments and really, you know, because I died, I'm like really good at like appreciating life. Like, no, that's not the case. Like, I definitely have some serious mental illness even. Like, I struggle with depression and there are days where I am not like stoked on life but I guess like the most resounding thing that I come back to is like that feeling of just pure wholeness and I wish there was a language or a word that described it perfectly but there isn't and we don't have one because or at least the English vocabulary doesn't have one I think that's kind of all I have to say.